Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of what's sure to be by now at least your third favorite podcast, Just Friends. I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and this week we were joined in the studio by none other than our friend, the handsome and talented Mr. Gabe Pruitt. Gabe is another vestige of my time spent at Starbucks. I was actually really close friends with his wife, Kate, um, because we worked together there. And then through Kate, I was able to meet Gabe. And he has been one of those people whom I've admired from afar. Uh, He's a super talented guy. He's a great musician. You'll find out in this podcast that he is a phenomenal talker. And you'll also hear me say he's not terrible to look at either. Uh, But he's taken ladies, so back off. No joke, this is probably one of the most fun conversations I've been able to have so far on Just Friends, and it's just because we kind of went off the rails a little bit. Gabe and I both seem to have similar interests, and we started talking about like artificial intelligence and what is consciousness and crazy stuff like that, things that I spend way too much of my time thinking about, and apparently Gabe also does. But once you get two people like that in the same room, especially in front of microphones, you know magic is going to happen. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and share the show with your friends and loved ones. Let them know what we're doing here at Just Friends. Send them over to the podcast website, justfriendspod.com, where they can buy merch. They can learn a little bit more about the show. They can listen to all the episodes, past and current. And they can also find links there to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts, where they can become patrons. You heard me shout them out last week, but I'm going to do it again this week. Emily Brown, Emily Berry, Ryan Ray, Ben Risen, David Vandelberg, and Seth Jones. The greatest people in the world and the truest of true members of the Just Friends podcast community. And now without any more chatting, I am excited to introduce to you our friend, Mr. Gay Pruitt. pretty neat i'll also keep my hands off the table <laughs> yeah these are not ideal but the road mics mm-hmm. or the road stands are like 99 bucks they are yeah so i'm not playing so when games. we were doing our podcast it was it was for our real estate branch and so it was completely underwritten by the company so we like that's why we got the procasters and we got the road stands and the zoom like we i think we spent like a thousand dollars just on gear before we even record our first episode, which is the difference between like doing it yourself and doing it for, for business. So it was a different kind of journey, but that's still really cool. Yeah. It was definitely fun. We learned a lot. We learned we could have done it for much cheaper and had basically the same results. Yeah, you can, but it's really, it's really a struggle because just having that information and just knowing what you need and what you don't need is hard to do. So for me in my personal life, the way it always works is I never get the cheapest thing when I want to start something because I usually want to start some new thing like once or twice a week, right? So <laughs> like either, it, so like most recently it was like, I wanted to get super into backpacking. That was something I wanted to do. You need to talk to my wife. You oh, would definitely I'm already do. over it, but it's okay. <laughs> 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 like I went, I went a few times and now I'm good. Uh, it was fun. It just wasn't a long-term thing, but like I wanted to buy all the gear, right? I needed to get a pack. And I was like, I need at least a 30 liter pack. Did you get Osprey? No, I didn't. I got one from REI, which okay. is like just as expensive. Oh yeah. But I got it, I got it during like the clearance thing last year. But anyways, I never want the 
entry level stuff because I'm like, I'm not entry level. I'm not entering at the entry level. I want to like, and, and I never want the most expensive thing either, ever. Cause I'm like, I know that this is going to be temporary, you know, dollars to donuts. That's what I'm betting. So I always get like something that's just like right in the mid grade. But I do this, and I noticed this, and I was talking to friends about this the other day. I do the same thing with like, uh, if you're starting to learn something new, like if you download like a, language learning app or I'm trying to especially if it's like learning an instrument because I'm like I never want to start it's like choose your difficulty level right never ever no matter how inexperienced I am will I pick beginner because I'm always like I'm not a beginner like it's gonna be too slow I'm gonna pick it up too fast it's gonna be a waste of my time and I always start higher than I should and I always get burned out because it's too hard (laughs) and that's what I do all the time so where did you go backpacking we went uh it was in Indiana yeah Hoosier National Forest I think Mitchell no no Mitchell Hill Lake is what's in Jefferson yeah um, which is, that's a cool hike too. If you've been to that little tiny lake, it's more like a pond, but, um, Oh yeah, I have done that. It's beautiful up there. It's really nice. Very yeah. serene. But I'm trying to think where the place in Indiana was. It was in Hoosier National Forest for sure. And then we did Red River Gorge once too. What'd you do in Red River Gorge? We just did like the natural bridge. We did the natural bridge trail and I'm trying to na- think of the name of the other trail that we did, but it was really easy. It was, it was one that wasn't very challenging. Uh, well, there are challenging hikes out there, but it's good for climbing is what it's really good for. Yeah. And I've never done any climbing before. No, so. I've never done any climbing. Well, I guess sort of. Uh, there's this one hike that I've done twice that I would recommend to anybody who wants to like have an initial experience at Red River Gorge. Okay. And uh, it's you can kind of do both of these things on one hike. And one is called Indian Staircase and the yeah. other is Cloud Splitter. Cloud Splitter. That, that's what I'm trying to think of. We yeah. didn't do it. But. Yeah. The reason that they're good, at least they were for me, they were perfect entry-level hikes. Because like I was saying, my wife, she backpacks a lot. She's done it in Europe. She's done it in South America. She's done like 100-mile trips. Okay. Um, And the reason this was good for me is because when I was a child, my dad left me in the woods by myself (laughs) once. Very John Wayne. (laughs) I've told this story before, but it it kind of tainted my my experience. When I feel like I'm lost, I tend to panic a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like I've, I've stayed away from like big backpacking trips, but I trust my wife so like... It's, I trust her so completely. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. She's a very capable woman. I trust her so completely that when I'm with her, I feel safe. And she took me on this hike. Indian staircase is what we did first. And it was just the right level of challenging to where like, I was afraid. Right. Like I was like, if I fall, I could get seriously hurt. Seriously dead. (laughs) But this is within my scope of ability. It was like right in that perfect zone. I was like, and the, the overall experience was really so cool. Once it was over with, I was like, man, this really gave me like a desire to want to do something like this again. Right. And then later in that same hike, we came kind of around and we got to what's called cloud splitter. And it's sort of the same thing. Like you, there's like a rope and it was just a little bit precarious, but I was like, I think I can pull this off. And then once I got up, basically you climb, it's mostly like a hike, but then once you get to the top of this huge hill, there's like this humongous rock. Okay, yeah. And you can use a rope to just kind of climb up to the top of this rock. And once you get up there, you can see for just miles. Right, right. And so, you know, I'm standing on top of this rock, like, with like 40 feet of rock all around me, feeling like, oh, shit. You know, like, <laughs> even though there's plenty of spaces, like, I'm going to fall. If I fall down, I'm going to land 30 feet from the edge of anything. But mm-hmm. I was, we were just so high up in the air and it was just like right, just the perfect amount of scary. And then we were up well, there for kind of like what natural bridge feels like. I mean, like you can go look over the edge, but even standing in the middle, you're like, I'm too close to the edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a little bit scared of heights, just no matter what. Now, see, I, I tell people all the time that I, 
that I like heights and I'm not, not afraid of heights. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm not really afraid of falling, which is weird to say because I haven't fallen a ton of times in my life, but it's like that sensation of falling is not naturally a really scary one to me, which is like, I think I would like skydiving. I think it would be really cool. Yeah. Because falling is more exhilarating than it is scary. So heights, I don't ever get that like kind of nauseous, I'm going to fall thing because I'm like, if I fall, I'm going to die. Like if it's high enough, it's whatever. So we're like, I'll just not fall and I'll be okay. I don't know. That doesn't make a ton of sense, but see when I'm, so it's interesting you say that because when I am standing on a high place, I feel in my stomach, the sensation as if I'm falling. Mm. It's almost like in, when the fear kind of swells up and I'm feeling a little bit unstable, the butterflies. But then once I settle into it, I feel comfortable. So I feel like once, if I were to go skydiving, the challenge would be getting out the door. Mm-hmm. Then once I, I think that's true for probably most people, but Gotta once be. I'm falling, I would settle into the experience and then be able to enjoy myself. Exactly. But it wouldn't be fun right away, I don't know. <laughs> It'll probably be really scary. <laughs> well, see, it's so funny. I say this like I'm this big, tough guy, but you know what gives me the biggest like heebie-jeebies in my stomach? Are, do you play a lot of video games at all? Not a lot, but I enjoy them. I play Call of Duty Mobile. <laughs> okay. Well, have you been in a video game where you're on top of something tall and then you jump off of it in the video game and it feels like you're falling? <laughs> like, I'll be, if you're playing something like Call of Duty and you're on top of a building mm-hmm. and you just jump off the edge and you feel that like your stomach sucking up into the top of your body feeling like that that gets me every time every time i jump off of something in a game i'm like like i feel like i'm falling have you ever done vr experiences that have like plank challenges or anything like that no like i've never done any like real vr like the oculus stuff and like that's like really immersive i've not done any of that yet i would like to that's what I did. It was on an Oculus Quest. So it's like the self-contained apparatus. I don't think it's quite as sophisticated as the Rift, mm-hmm. but you actually plug into like a high-end gaming PC. Yeah. This is kind of like a self-contained unit. Um, so the graphics were not convincing, but the scenario was convincing. Okay. And you felt like you were high up because you were immersed because it your entire field of vision is this scene and it feels like you're in it and you walk out on that little ledge you're like oh shit Mm -hmm. but as is usually true you know like you can kind of logic your way out of that sensation well and it's just this is just proof that all this stuff is just happening in your brain Mm -hmm. right like if you can get the same sensation inside a vr headset as you can actually standing on something tall it's not the something tall that does it to you it's whatever it's whatever your brain is processing about the situation you're in so if you can if presumably if it can be turned on it can be turned off yeah I don't know. That's a good point. And presumably, if I can turn it off when I'm sitting in a VR screen, when I'm in the actual scenario, you should, I should be, be Yeah. Risk that the, the stakes are a little bit higher. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm interested to hear, uh, you know, your perspective. You were talking about when you buy gear, you always like to go middle of the road. And I'm the same way when I want to buy new stuff, but I'm a little bit different. Okay. I will research for months. If mm. I'm going to spend more than. 75 bucks. Yep. It's going to take probably like at least two months before I actually really settle into the decision to buy something. That's just kind of me personally. And uh, I kind of, it's, I'm cheap. All my friends make fun <laughs> of me about it. They're like, Mitch, you don't like to spend money. And it's true. Well, it's not that I don't like to spend money because I really enjoy spending yeah. money. It feels great, but it's, uh, I like to spend money once. Yeah. <laughs> what makes me so mad is when I buy something and it's not what I needed and I have to buy something different to replace oh, I hate it. that too. That's why I do the research because I want to buy one time. I mm-hmm. want to buy the right thing the first time. It's exactly what I need, not more than I need, not less than I need, just the thing that I need the first time, done. 
Sometimes I'm even a little bit more superficial than that. And I'm just like, is this the thing that I'm going to be happy with? Good point. No, that's true too. I do that too. <laughs> that's funny. So I met you through your wife, Kate. Yep. Because we work together at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So immediately, you know, Dixie Highway, Starbucks, my assumption is that you grew up in the south end of Louisville. Would that be a correct yes. assumption? So if you think about where the Dixie Highway Starbucks is, I've probably lived within 10 miles of it. My entire life, minus a few months, yeah. probably. <laughs> Me too, honestly, okay. yeah. I live closer to it now than I did when I first started working there. Right. <laughs> so then, wh- exactly what neighborhood did you grow up? Did you go, did you like live in PRP your whole life? Did you go to Greenwood Elementary School? I didn't go to Greenwood. No, I went to Brandeis downtown, oh, really? if you know where Brandeis is. But uh, I grew up, first house I grew up in was in Hunters Point. Okay, so right there on the Shively, the 40216, 40258 line, right? Where it's between Shively and PRP. And when I was, uh, before I was 10 sometime, we moved into Park Ridge, where my parents still live. So that was, I grew up around Iroquois Park. Iroquois Park was kind of my stomping grounds area for a long time. But then I lived there until Kate and I got married. And when we got married, we moved out to some apartments off of Blankenbaker. So you know where Southeast is and everything out there, because that was close to work for me. We had our apartment there for a few months, started looking at houses. And this is this is no knock on PRP at all because, like I said, I'm a PRP person for life. But it's like we were both we both grew up out here, and we were like, okay, we're just not moving back to PRP. We've lived out here in the East End. This is the closest we've ever been to a Whole Foods. Like we're we're living out here now, okay? We're like we're East Enders now, and so we're like, okay, well, let's find our first house out in the East End, which is something hilarious that people say when they have no idea how much houses <laughs> cost. Uh, and so we looked nothing in our price range. We're like, okay, J Town. We could be J Town. J Town. J Town's nice, people. bro. Yeah, sure it is. They got a feast right across the street from a Royals. Listen, feast and Royals, and you don't. Even had to go to Nulu. So we were like, this is what we're going to do. And like everything in our price range was like super like, like run down, like needed to be completely like needed another hundred grand of renovations. And so we ended up getting moved out to like, um, like we didn't want to live in Butchel. Like we just, and nothing against these places. We just knew where we didn't want to live because we wanted to be close to certain things. Yeah. And it's just, we just kept getting forced closer and clo- or farther and farther out. And then eventually we found our house, which is right off Blanton. Which, if you know, you know, Dixie, Blanton, it's like literally a stone's throw from that same Starbucks. Like, I live right, like, probably five minutes from it now. And it's so funny that it brings us back there where we started. But it was a perfect house. And it was super cheap. It was under our price range. We loved it. We're still there. We live there. This is five years this year that we've lived there. And we're probably going to move before too long. But... Yeah, we just found our way right back to PRP. So that's where we've been our entire lives. Yeah, if you're from here, it's not hard to make that transition. No, our whole family's here. Yeah. yeah. My wife's not from here. She's from this, uh, like, she grew up in Oldham County, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and she's made the transition, uh, but it was a little bit tough for her at first, I think. Gotta, gotta be. <laughs> it's just there's not that. It's like, like I said, I love this place and it'll always be a part of part of me. But it's like there's just not that much stuff. When you're used to being around stuff. Oh, yeah. There's just not a ton of stuff out here. And it's not super pretty either. Like, where she lives is beautiful. We'll drive mm. out there. And I'm like, everything is fucking green. Yeah. Look, there's a fountain. Look at that beautiful fountain in that person's, like, it's backyard. Like, and none of this stuff is broken. Like, where's all your broken stuff? <laughs> That's hilarious. No, but unfortunately, yeah, we'll probably, uh, I don't think we, we plan to stay in the South End forever. Yeah. But I do feel such a strong connection to the South End of Louisville and the people that live here. I love them just because, I, I don't know, they, I, I see myself reflected in them. Yeah. Even in some of the, you know, the worst qualities. Like even when I'm like driving, uh, you know, I'm going through a drive through and like some lady in front of me is like cussing out the barista. I'm like, you know what? I've sort of been that person at one point. You've in my been life. both of those yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. You've been on both ends of that. I don't know. It's like it's like you said, there's a part of this. It's like 
it's not like I'm trying to run away. It's not like we live in small town USA and it's like the worst place ever and you're just like dying to get out. That's not what like the South End is like, but it's also not a forever kind of place. You know what I mean? Opportunities are elsewhere. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with wandering away from home as long as you don't like disown your people. You know yeah. what I mean? I kind of like to get a little further away from home for a little while at least, you know, mm-hmm. honestly try to check some stuff out. But you said you went to Brandeis. How in the world did you end up doing that? Was it just was it a choice? That's a great question, and I'm not 100% sure. At the time, and it might still be, it was like, and you got to think, this is early 2000s. This is like the year 2000. So it was a STEM magnet before there were STEM magnets, mm. right? Like it was the first kind of, uh, it was, I think it was kind of like an experiment for magnet schools in JCPS at the time. But their big thing was, you know, science, science, technology, math. Like that was their big thing. And so I think, you know, my mom worked downtown, like she's a lawyer and she worked downtown at the time. She's, I mean, she worked downtown for a long time, but it was, it was the most, um, convenient for her to pick me up and drop me off and everything on her way to work. And I think that's kind of where it started. It was a good school from what I remember. I mean, I was in elementary school. So, I mean, if, I mean, if I was safe, it was a good school, but yeah. Well, you know, also, I was just kind of thinking of it from the perspective of like, you have good parents. I've met your parents. They're Mm -hmm. just really nice people. And they are nice people. I had this conversation with my buddy Torrance. He's like, when you have great parents who are like going to make sure that you, their child has good values and that their child is learning stuff, putting them in more diverse environments mm-hmm. is a really good idea. And I feel like, you know, Brandeis being downtown, like it'd be a more diverse school. It was, yeah. And I wonder what that, so like, what was that experience like for you coming up? And, you know, it's it's also, I hate to, to kind of carry on this train of thought, but it's like, you talked about math and STEM, mm-hmm. and so many people who have been on the show have talked about like that being a big driving factor in their life. I think that was just something about like the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, but I don't think about that when I think about you. You know, and I don't think about it when I think about me either. <laughs> and like, it's so funny, like, because when you talk about you know diversity in schools and STEM and stuff like that, looking back, there's tons of things that I think now. Um, as a result of being out of K through 12 for a long time. But I mean, when I was in elementary school, I didn't even have any sense that there was diversity in that school. You know, for me, that was my first experience, uh, you know, aside from preschool and kindergarten in a public school setting. So to me, that was just normal. I mean, that was just looking back, it was definitely a very diverse school, even compared to some of the schools that I went to later on, you know, but then it was just school, you know what I mean? So it was very, very normal. And I think at at least some level, it was formative for me. It was very good to be in an environment like that. And and like you said, as far as it being a STEM school, I mean, that early on in my education, I'm, I couldn't, I, I can't tell you anything that really groundbreaking that I learned in elementary <laughs> school that's impacting me today. I Did was you always, learn to read there, bro? Yeah, I, I probably, <laughs> okay, good point, good point. Uh, what I'll say though is for me later on in life, I got more, I was way more interested in the arts than I was in anything real academic, which I really like learning. I really do. But I was just always bad in school. Always. Really? Yeah. And all the way through, all the way through high school, especially into college, like my education story is one of just constantly not measuring up. Like that's probably (laughs) how I would describe it. And it's because I was always way more interested in stuff that would never help me make money, which was, which was my biggest problem. At least that's what you thought. I think that's what like I thought. Yeah. The, the internet has changed that a lot, dude. The internet is the only reason that I have a job right now. <laughs> so I mean, like it's a, uh, it's very. I'm very lucky to have the situation that I do now. But I think if anything, having like all of those experiences in school kind of like lit up curiosity for me, which has been the biggest thing that's helped me is curiosity. Not necessarily any like specific thing that I've learned. So, but but you're right. When I think about you, I think of arts. I think of music mostly, mm-hmm. and. 
I feel like I know where that started for you, but I'd kind of like to hear your story for how, how did that start for you? Where did you feel like you first became interested in music? And was that something, because when I think of you, I also think of a person who's just maybe innately talented mm-hmm. at stuff like that. Okay. I don't know. Here's what I would say. So music for me started not because of some like epiphany at a young age. I started playing guitar. That was my first instrument. I started playing when I was 10. Uh, and the reason was my my dad and a lot of my mom's side of the family all were invested in a family business that was here off uh, Tradeport, not far from where we are now. And it was called First Quality Musical Supplies, right? That was my grandfather's uh, family business and it had been around for a long time. It was a big Louisville staple for a long time too. But like half of my, more than half of my family worked there. Like that was where everybody worked. And so when I was in middle school, um, I got off the bus at First Quality Music. Like that was my bus stop because I would sit there with my dad and with my grandpa and my uncles. That's where we all were. And he would just bring me home when he finished work at like six o'clock. So instead of getting dropped off at home, I was getting dropped off at a music store every day for several years. So, I mean, you can't do that for too long without at least getting a little bit interested in wanting to play instruments. So like every day I'm spending multiple hours um, with like basically VIP access to a music store with guitars and banjos and all these things all over the wall. So didn't, was, didn't you guys have a Luther there that built their own banjos for a while? Yeah, yeah. It was that was one of the things that was the main driving force of that business was building banjos. That was uh. kind of the centerpiece. And then there was a showroom and there was retail sales, kind of as an accessory for for the beginning of it for sure. Um, but you know, being around and I was around a ton of talented musicians too. Like all the people that worked there were also musicians yeah. for the most part. And it wasn't until um, later on in the business that they started doing music lessons there too, which is kind of what a lot of retail places will do. Eventually, they'll start lessons, you know, or they'll host lessons there where teachers can come and pay a fee. Anyways, that was something that happened. So as soon as that happened there, I was like, oh, wow, I've got to take music lessons. Because like, I, I you can only pick up so many guitars and like hold it in your hand and wonder and then just go like, bling, so many times before you need to learn how to really play it. So at 10 years old, I was thinking, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to take guitar lessons. That was not what I expected you to say. Well, see, this is what's interesting. That's where it started for me, and I was really bad at guitar at first, <laughs> as most as most beginning students are, but especially you know at 10 years old with a short attention span, which has been like the defining factor of my life is my short attention span. But um, you know, it was tough. I, I struggled a lot because what I wanted was to be able to play a song really quickly, and I was really lucky because the teacher I had was one of the best He's passed away now, but he was a very, very, very proficient guitar player, and he had to change his style a lot to deal with me, and I'm very thankful he did, because he was a very traditional, um, he would teach people the fundamentals of a guitar. Like, that's where you start, right? And I was just not having it. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to learn scales. I don't want to learn, like, correct hand placement and all these different things. I was like, I want to play Smoke on the Water. Like, that's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to play the James Bond theme song. And he was like, okay. He's like, if that's what you want to learn, we're just going to learn it. And if you learn it wrong, he's like, we'll just... If that's what will keep you interested, we'll fix these things over time. And that's what happened. I ended up taking lessons from from like four or five years, which is a long time to take lessons. But I mean, eventually they just turned into like jam sessions because I was there all the time. But I mean, he taught me that way so that I could play things that I knew badly. But at least I was proud of myself because I was like, I'm playing something I recognize and it feels good to know that I'm making progress. And over time, the technical skills and the doing things the right way, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, like that, that kind of came later on. And yeah. so that was huge for me to have someone invest their time in me, even though I was going completely against the grain of the way that they teach. And so now fast forward, I've been playing guitar 17, 18 years, and I've added on a handful of other instruments, but learning to play guitar that way influenced the way that I learn 
music now too. And like a lot of people talk about learning music by ear. And like I say that, but it's not really by ear. I feel like the way, and you might be the same way too. The way that I learn and internalize music is like, I hear it and I know, and I know what I'm hearing and I know what I'm trying to reproduce. And then I just figure it out. Right. It's not a struggle to figure out like, like if I hear something, I can tell what I'm hearing and how to recreate it. I just need to figure out the specifics. And so piano came after guitar and banjo eventually because I was in a big banjo family and it just kind of like spiraled out of control there. But maybe what you were thinking for me, where music really took off and where I started to develop was when I started playing in church. That was a big thing for me as I started uh, playing music in church. And that's where I really had to develop skills to play with other people. It wasn't about just kind of like um, being a soloist anymore, if that makes sense, or a hobbyist, I would say. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the way you learn music because I, I don't relate to that, actually. Okay. I don't learn music or pick it up by sound or feel. Every once in a while, I'll stumble into something. Mm-hmm. But usually, I want the blueprints. Okay. I want to see the blueprints, and then I can feel it, and I can add. And I'm a good enough musician that once I've figured out what it feels like to play that song, I can I can carry on from there. Once I've seen the blueprints, uh, I do think that that's probably just because I haven't played a ton. It hasn't been as much of a priority for me as it may have been for you. I didn't take lessons for a bunch of years, and honestly, I didn't really take playing my instrument super seriously ever, even okay. now. It's just been I've been doing it for such a long time that I've kind of managed to get okay at it. Yeah, and and I'll even say for like the amount of time that I played guitar, almost two decades, which like that makes me feel really old to even yeah, say. Yeah, you're old, man, bro. Anyways, but like playing guitar for that long, there's so much that I can learn, and I know it because there's stuff that like one of my big aspirations is to like really get better at playing jazz guitar. It's one of the styles that I'm very interested in. It's just so difficult for me. Yeah, the because, chords are crazy. And like soloing, I've never, I've always been a rhythm guitar player for guitar people out there. Like never a lead player because that getting like lead licks and stuff under my fingers takes a lot of work. Comping is like my sweet spot. Like I can hear, I could like throw myself into any group. Like this is one, like I'm not like bragging on myself because there's tons of things I can't do. But like the thing that I can do is if people are playing in a group and they need someone to just like jump in immediately and start playing without looking at something, like that's what I can do. I can start adding to the musical conversation with what I know how to do and fit in, but not like take over the lead line and start running things. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. See, I'm the guy who's like, you guys tell me what I need to learn mm. and I'll put the work in and figure it out and I'll be ready to go when I get there. But if we have to improvise too much, I just don't feel comfortable with that because I haven't spent enough time with my instrument to get that familiar with Gotcha. It. So gotcha. I'm not fluent. I'm not fluent in the language um, and I'm not even conversational <laughs> but i am but i'll show up ready to talk yeah if you know what i mean it's not and i would i wouldn't even say that what i'm most comfortable with is um like improv like you know imp- improvisation in music because that's not even really what i feel like is the sweet spot for me but it's like um i know how to i can pick up on what i'm here and like and i said that before but it's like when i'm hearing a certain chord progression like i can hear a song that i've never heard before and start playing along to it in a kind of basic sucky way really quickly. Because like I know, like if I can hear the first two or three chords, I can know what pattern it's going to follow for the rest of the song. And I am I'm like, I know if I hear these three chords, like if I hear E, A, and D, then I know that I better have like an F sharp minor ready to go and a B ready to go just in case. That's and music like, theory. Right. And so like there's some theory that I have like baked in, even though I never really studied theory, I think it's just like after playing for so long, and especially playing in groups for so long, because like, way more I've never really 
even attempted to do something with my music on my own, I've always played in groups. And so from playing in groups like that, there's and playing so many different types of music, like I've picked up on enough theory that I'm like, oh, I know where to go. Like if we start going somewhere, I'm going to be able to fall. I'm not going to get lost. Like if I know what key we're in, we're going to be okay. So See, I feel like I'm at a place in my life where like if I had a reason to learn all that stuff, I definitely could and would. Mm-hmm. I just... I'm I'm learning about podcasting right now. I'll, I'll you know like it's one of those things. Yeah. But I I wish I did have. I have a buddy who plays out. He goes out and he's like gigging. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like small little things. We went and saw him the other day, and like literally when we left, there was kind of nobody else there. So I was kind of like, mm-hmm. but it was like nine thirty. So I was like we gotta get out of here, bro. <laughs> um, but I would I would enjoy doing something like that, playing to an empty room. Yeah. But you know something I probably will someday. It's yeah. probably something that I'm gonna do someday. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you're right. You know, I was kind of expecting you to talk a little bit more about church when you were talking about like how you got into music, because I know that's a big part of what you do now, and that's a big part of who you are. Well, that's how I got into music. Seriously, that's what I'd say. It's definitely not how I got exposed to music. I gotcha. got exposed to music by force. Like I was locked in a room with guitars for a large part of my childhood, so it happened inevitably. But um, being in it in a space where, because I mean, playing in church is a lot different than gigging too. Because I mean, I've done a little bit of gigging in the past, but playing in church, I mean, at least for most people, and, it, and there's no right or wrong way, but it's like for me, when I was growing up, I had a big instilled part of me that was like, I wanted to impress people with my ability. Like it was very superficial. My music was very superficial. And like, Picking up a guitar for the first time was very superficial. I wanted to impress people. I wanted to impress girls, right? I wanted people to be like, look, I can play guitar and that makes me cool. And so you can only do that at church for so long before you realize that's not the point, right? And so especially when other people are relying on you, and and not everybody that's listening is going to necessarily resonate with this, and that's okay. But uh, for me, when, when I got in church, not only did I get better at my music through a lot of practice, but I got a with a bunch of people who I could see music was not just like a hobby for them. It's something that would, they were gifted at, like people that were way better than me. And even with all of that ability, instead of using it to draw attention to themselves, they were using it for something that they were much more passionate about. They were giving their ability. And that was something that became way more attractive to me in the future. And so like you said, if there was a reason for you to delve deeper and to learn all of this stuff, you would. For me, that was the reason. Like once I figured out like this is a way that I can serve, this is a way that I can serve others, this is a way that I can be useful, this is a way that I can make this about more than just myself, it gave me the reason to really commit. And that's when I started like digging into music. And I think that's really the reason I stuck with it. Because otherwise, it would have been just like all the other things that I get really excited about for a few months and then stop doing. It's one of the very, very few things in my life that I've carried on for as long as I have, as far as like a a thing that I do. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's why you're good at it. You know, this is kind of, I think, where you and I differ because at the beginning, for music for me also was just like a superficial thing. It was something mm-hmm. I was interested in doing because I wanted that to be a thing about myself that other people admired, that I could play music. Um, and then I started playing for church and that tra- that full transition of doing it for a bigger reason never fully clicked for me. And then eventually, I don't know if you know this about me, but I kind of realized that I was being disingenuous by playing music at church. I think I think a lot of people struggle with that at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially if that's not why they got into music, which for very few people, most, I don't think there's a ton of people that feel drawn to worship as like their ministry, as the way they want to minister to others. And they say, I've got to learn an instrument stat. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't, I think it's the opposite. People have musical ability and they say, oh, I have the opportunity to lead th- people through worship because this is something that I already possess as a skill. 
Yeah. So for a lot of people, there's that imposter syndrome that's like, am I really doing this for the right reasons? Well, for me, I was genuinely an imposter because I'm definitely, I don't <laughs> identify as a Christian anymore. It's not okay. something that's a part of who I am as a person. And I still really super value all of the relationships that I built in Absolutely. the church. Sure. And like, uh, I don't think negatively about anybody who's a Christian. In fact, like I encourage people, like if that's how you feel and that's how you want to spend your life and invest, like find an awesome church and a great group of people who are going to challenge you to be better and are going to hold you accountable and who you can invest in and do the same thing for them. Yeah. I'm all about that. That just doesn't work for me. It's, um, it's different for me. Yeah. Uh, so like, that's kind of why I had to leave. I was like, I'm standing up here pretending to be this thing that I'm, I definitely am not, especially mm-hmm. not right now. And I don't, th- I don't think I will be again, if I'm being honest. Okay. And that's also kind of why, like, it's interesting to talk to other people who like know me as a Christian, but like haven't spent time with me in a long time because I've changed so much. Sure. But I know that's a big part of your life and I think it's really cool. And yeah. also, dude, you're really good at it. Oh, like you're talented, you. man. And that's a really interesting thing. And I, I'm really interested in that process of growing and how you get better at something. And that's that's something that I look to you and I think, you know, this person's a person who's gotten really good at this. So you must have spent a ton of time investing in it and learning about I, it. I, I'm not like at some kind of prodigy level or anything. And it's like I said, there's tons of facets of music that are just still like super alien to me. But the thing that I do, I feel like I'm really good at that thing. And I figured out how to make myself useful doing it. And so it's like you said, it's just doing it over time. I've just done it for a long time now. So. Yeah. And also it's kind of like once you know you know what you don't know. Yeah. And you realize like, oh my God, there's so much more that I don't know than right. I know. And that that's uh, that's true about all things. And man, I'll say this too about playing in church. It's um, it's like you said, every, I was saying like everyone has an imposter moment. And for some people, it sticks. And for other people, it's like something that you're constantly dealing with. For me, it's like something I'm constantly dealing with. Because I went from a small-ish church. Small-ish is, I don't even know how you describe it. But, you know, like 400, 500 people. I'm familiar with that church. I've been there with you before. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's here in the area. And, like, for me, that that church has always been a huge part of my life. I was there since I was born. Like, literally. Like, probably as soon as I was able to, like, be out in public as an infant, I was probably in church that Sunday at that church. And that's where I was until right before, or, like, right after Kate and I got married. Which, I was 22 when I got married. Right? So, 20, 20 plus years in the same church. Uh, and it's like most people, and I'm like sure you probably had experiences like this too. Once you are in the kind of that age where you're an adult and you're really out there on your own, not only do you kind of reshape the way you think about the world and your place in it, but you really start to rethink things about your faith, especially, especially if you're brought up in a, uh, in faith, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people, I was, when I was growing up and not to turn this into a whole thing about church, but like when I was growing up, I met a ton of people that didn't get into their Christian life until later in their life, like post-adolescent, post-adolescent. And that was so weird, not weird. It was so different for me because I was basically born a Christian. That's not possible. That's not how Christianity works. But like for me, it felt that way. Like I was immersed in church culture from day one. You know, it was like the moment I hit the ground. So for me, especially in teenage years, Lots of doubts, lots of thinking like, is, do I really believe this or is this, this just where all my friends are, where all my mentors are, what my parents have taught me, what my family thinks? Is, is there any part of like my actual identity here or is this just the place that I spend a lot of time? You know what I mean? So that was, a, that's not something that's unique to me. I think a lot of people go through that. 
And then again, it happened for me as an adult because I started to see things that I'd never seen that kind of happened. And church, the church, like corporate church in America especially, is kind of one of those weird things. It's like, it's not always rainbows and roses and it's just not always pretty. And it's like people run the church and people and people suck sometimes. You know what I mean? And so I think a lot of people have really negative church experiences that inform their Christianity view, right? Which I think is fair. I think if we're not going to hold Christians accountable for telling people what Christianity is about, then that's not exactly fair, right? I don't think there's any problem with people thinking what they think about Christianity because of their experience with other Christians. But especially for me, there was just some stuff happening at our church that was just really, it was just a really toxic time around the time that we left. And we ended up leaving and it was so hard for me because I mean, I'd been there for 20 something years. You're leaving your tribe basically. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's like, even as a young, a young man being there, um, I was in a position of not leadership, but of of a lot of, um, visibility, Mm -hmm. right? I was leading worship there every week. Um, not that I was like a huge important piece of what was happening there because obviously, I mean, like they were fine after I left. But for me, it was hard for me to justify walking away from that place once I felt uncomfortable there because I was like, am I betraying all these people who have invested in me, who have given me this opportunity, that have given me a chance, uh, that have like trusted me to lead them and to worship with them and minister to them? And it was hard. It was hard for me to walk away. But I mean, Kate and I being newly married and we talked about it and we decided like, this is not a, this place is toxic to our faith. Like this is going to start changing the way that we think about our relationship as Christians if we stay here because it's because it's so far away from what we actually believe. And so we had to make the harder decision to step away. And it was it was a hard decision, but it was the right decision for sure. But what what I'm getting at and how this ties back to music is on the flip side of that, we ended up going to a church that averages, you know, in a service 2000 people. Okay? So much bigger church, more in the like mega church world. I think you can call it a mega church pretty honestly. I mean, it's like big, big church where it's like on a weekend, you're looking at, you know, between five and 6,000 people. Yeah. And when are, you think about, so like, let's, let me give some context to the listener. Cause I kind of know what you're saying. Like, you're not yeah. talking about the building. You're talking about this body. You're talking about this community of people. So, right. so even all those people not, might not be coming to one location, but they're coming to multiple locations around the city. And well, so, this is one location. Oh, wow. So it's just really big. And okay. it's in India. Yeah. It's just a big <laughs> church. And so when you scale up like that in the, in a, church setting everything scales up and like production values scales up and like yeah when you're when you're you're not a performer okay you never want to get confused and think that you're a performer when you're leading worship but the performance like the the uh, production value definitely increases and steps up i mean like the equipment that we're using the amount of practice that goes into putting on a service uh and all those different things for someone who's not 100 percent locked in on their purpose it's very easy to think that you're up there to perform to a crowd of thousands of people, which seems like a huge deal. You know what I mean? And I guess if you think about it, it can be a huge deal if you're someone who's trying to show that you are a musician and an artist, but that's not what that place is for, right? So, but inevitably, all normal human beings, when they're in that situation, have to do the dance of, am I doing this for me? Because I like people seeing me play and sing because I sing too. Do I do, I do this because I like that? Or do I do this because this is what I feel called to do? And for me, I mean, it's been a part of the story of my entire life. So that's, that's what I feel called to do. That's how I feel like I minister to other people. I've had tons of relationships start that way that really make me feel like this is what I'm doing to um, be useful to people. Because there's tons about that. Like, because you, I mean, you're talking about, and I don't know the specifics. It's like you said, it's news to me. I, what your negative experiences with the church and what made oh, you walk away. Oh, negative. 
Nothing negative. Okay. I love my Christian friends and, and the family of people that I was with at the church. I just, I don't agree with their point of view anymore. Okay. Yeah. That's all it is. Well, see, one of the biggest reasons that I ended up leaving the church I was at is I figured out there were so many people in leadership that had views that I could not reconcile. You know what I mean? Just things that I couldn't, couldn't sit with. And even now, and even in the communities that I'm in, there are tons of people who are also, it's like you said, uh, you said something a second ago. It's like, you're not, I'm, I'm not mad at anyone who's like, because they're Christian or anything. I can think of tons of Christians that I just, I just really think are gross. And that's a really hard thing to say because I'm also a Christian and, uh, you know, and I hate feeling that way about people, but there are people with views and ideas and stuff that I think are just really like really troubling. And I, and I know that I'm not perfect and I definitely don't think that I'm perfect or that I've got it all figured out. But what I'm pursuing is not some kind of, um, to fit into some societal box where, oh, that guy's obviously a Christian because he does this. He doesn't do that. He votes for this person. He agrees with this. He disagrees with that. So he must be a Christian. I try to let people know that I'm a Christian by the things that I do for other people, the way that I show up for people, the way that I live my life, the way that I love on people, and especially the things that I speak out against too, you know? And I think that's one of the hardest things for Christians to do because it's so tribal, right? You know what I say? Like when you find your tribe, you're saying something about that. Uh, it's really hard to buck the trend sometimes because I think that a lot of times, especially within the church, within the American church, there are these tribes that form. And at first it's all good. It's all things that you agree with, but all of a sudden, the cost of membership is you also have to tack on this one thing that kind of makes you feel icky, but it's like, this is what everyone here believes. So I'm just going to stay quiet about it. And what happens is as those things coalesce over time, you start to find yourself a part of a body that doesn't line up with what you believe. And it's really hard to be the one dissenter in a room full of people who seem to agree. And I think, and at least from my experience, more often than not, not everyone agrees on all the things that are happening. People need to hear and be questioned and be challenged. And I think a lot of people in church environments are afraid to challenge and are afraid to ask questions, are afraid to be seen as doubters. And I think that's the most important thing you can do as a Christian is challenge people's beliefs and ask them, why do we think this? You know what I mean? Because if it, if it bears out, if there's a reason to believe it, if there's something in your faith that can back it up, then it will be there and it will be revealed. But I think that's the only way you start weeding out things that don't belong in the church. Yeah. I think of it more, I do think of it as being tribal, um, but I don't think that's negative. You need your tribe. You need that group of people who you can plug into and that you can connect with and who are going to lift you up and make you better. Mm -hmm. And so like reconciling your beliefs with that group of people's beliefs is super important. And if you can do that, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of, I can kind of relate to how you feel like you do have people who say they're Christians and there are even people who do that like in the media who then their behavior does not represent the values that that you apply to that title. Absolutely. And I know that I do that often too, which is the the internal struggle. Not to the degree that sometimes, or I'd like to think, not to the degree that I see other people do it. But I know that I, I proudly tell people that I'm a Christian and I'm happy to have that conversation with people and talk to them about what that has been like in my life and why I'm still a Christian and you know why I believe that I always will be. Um, but you know, I definitely catch myself all the time thinking like, wow, this is not a good look, <laughs> yeah. not, not a good look. G like definitely need a reverse course here. Yeah. And I think part of that's part of not just the Christian experience, but the human experience, but part of what, I mean, at least my faith is, is to me is a way to constantly keep myself in check, not like slap myself on the wrist because I did 
did this thing that will look bad to my fellow tribe members, like you said, but it's like, like, it's like such a cliche, but it's like really check your heart and be like, am I in the right place right now? Doing the right thing, thinking the right things, saying the right things, living the right way. Uh, and if I'm not, am I more comfortable doing it this way? And if I am, that's something that I really need to ask myself, where, where do I want to be? You know, how, how do I want to be? So, yeah, that's something that's great about, about corporate religion that when people use it well, they use the tool. And I know so many people who do who really use it as a tool to check themselves and make sure that they're living up to the standards that they believe that they're supposed to be living to, and it makes them better people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also relate to uh, those situations where that that means that they also accept ways of thinking that aren't necessarily going to move us forward as a, as a nation in a positive direction mm-hmm. or, or stuff like that. But I guess for me, I don't know, it's just hard. I just... The fundamentals of what Christianity are and what, what the fundamentals of Christianity, the things that you have to believe to be a member. Sure. That doesn't work for me. So that's why I'm not doing it. We're not going to make this entire conversation about this. But if you would, what's one of the big, I'm not going to like sit here and debate you. We're not going to do like Bill Nye versus the yeah. Noah's Ark guy. Like that's not what we're going to do. Uh, but like what's one, I'm just curious, like what's one of the big things that really kind of informed you this way that kind of had that shift for you? I all, I, so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like math and science. Mm-hmm. I'm a math and science guy, sort of. For sure. And so, like, over time, I started to understand math um, as I studied calculus and then, like, uh, differential equations and linear algebra. And I started to see how, like, these are models for the world in which we live. So, so things like creation. Mm-hmm. I struggle with that. But to be perfectly honest, like, I, I haven't replaced it with a with a better answer, really. Like, I don't know what consciousness is or, or what I am or what my purpose is. I, I mean, I, I could talk about that forever too. I love just the entire idea of just consciousness and what part of us is, anyways, I like that's a whole other conversation for next, but. Well, it, I know let's go into it now. Cause it's, it's a great conversation. Like when I try to, I try to understand consciousness, I think about it. I, I'm really interested in the reproduction of consciousness. There's this guy I like to listen. I've listened to him talk for a couple of hours on different like lectures. His name's Ben Gertzel. Okay. He's way too smart <laughs> for me to really understand anything that I'm hearing when he talks. But, but you're he, getting pieces, yeah. Yeah. But he works for this company called Singularity Net in Hong Kong and they're basically trying to create um like AI. Moral AI. He's like, we've already got AI. It's what influences the algorithms on social media. It's what, you know, um maps out train tracks from drones flying over it it can tell the difference between regular ground and train tracks but we have this very narrow ai it can only do some things really good right it can determine what you're going to click on really really well for Mm, social media predictive yeah Yeah. or it can tell the difference between a a patch of train track and a patch of grass on a piece of picture yes exactly but we do not have this general artificial intelligence that's able to artificial consciousness well even consciousness I mean, consciousness is a totally different thing than intelligence. I'm not really sure that we're ever going to be able to develop an artificial intelligence that has consciousness. Awareness, right? I'm not sure. That's really a big question I that they know. talk about. I don't know. Is that what I read and what I see? And like you said, I'm not anywhere near qualified to make predictions in this arena, but like it's something that really actually interests me. And I don't know. I feel like we in the in the community it's talked about as the singularity, right? Yes. You hear people like Ray That's Kurzweil the name of the company. And, right, singularity name. Exactly. And the singularity is described as the event, the event horizon, the moment where an artificial intelligence becomes aware of itself 
in a sense that it becomes conscious. It's mm-hmm. able to it's able to not just make decisions because AI can make decisions now. AI can ration and reason, be rational and and reason to make decisions now. That's possible. But for it to truly think, and the difference between deciding on things and analyzing things, like you said, predicting things like what we click, and being able to truly think, being able to choose, and being able to want. Like, because AI can choose things right now, but can AI really want things? Can it desire outcomes? Or can it simply predict and execute on programming that's been given to it by someone else? Is it able to really singularly want something for its own benefit, and that's what I don't think we've seen yet. But I, I don't know that it's impossible. I, well, we won't know until it emerges, because then you also have the other side of that, which is kind of like the Elon Musk side of it, or um, someone who may be familiar with Sam Harris side of it, where it's like human beings are that we are just a extremely complicated set of algorithms, and once we can understand those algorithms fully. Right. We can make predictions about human decisions in the human experience. Right. And so that's kind of what Elon Musk is doing there with like Neuralink is he's trying to create an artificial connection between the human brain and the Internet so that one, we humans can interface with the Internet, but also so that we can collect data about how the human brain is functioning and try to understand it better so that we can then be more predictive about the decisions that human beings are going to make on an even more basic level. Mm-hmm. So you kind of asked me earlier about like, what's where was that transition where I really decided that maybe I'm not a Christian anymore? It was always in the air, but I read this book by this man named Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. Sapiens? Sapiens. Yeah. I read Sapiens. And then after I read Sapiens, I read Homo Deus. Mm-hmm. And I was like... Both very good. Crap. <laughs> crap. This makes too much sense to me. I, yeah. I struggle with the fact that one, I, the logic here is strong, and two, I do not like the outcome that he is predicting, predicting. or at least foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yeah. So you've read the, you've read both books. Uh, I've I've read the first one. I've skimmed Homodeus. Homodeus, so. okay. So, but you're familiar with the concepts of infotech and biotech that he right, talks right, about right. in that book. Um, in in my audio drama, these things have come to fruition. And a human being who's still kind of in like the residual middle class, he ha- he comes from a, a family who's been able to be mindful about his genetic makeup, who's been able to be mindful about how he augments his body with technology, but who's not a part of the class that can just run wild with that and who's heading in the direction of becoming something other than human. And he is a character who anticipates that. And it's like, we're going to have to prepare for the emergence of this other species, Homo Deus. And that's where the whole story starts with him. Interesting. Okay. And I'm really excited about how See, it goes I from like there. See, I like that. And I just really like all sci-fi in general, especially stuff that has undercurrents that have to do with AI and especially like AI merges. Like I said, like that's the thing that kind of interests me. And before we move, because I want to I want to move wholeheartedly into this. But there's like <laughs> one thing I was going to say. To reconcile like what you were talking about, those things kind of like changing your... Uh, your beliefs and how they kind of informed you moving forward and cause that dissonance, right? Because I think for most people, if you're normal at a point in your life, in your walk with faith too, you will experience dissonance between this makes sense, but this is what the person I trust tells me to believe, which is for a lot of people, it's unfortunately that is the, that's the entire basis of what they believe is someone they trust hold them to, which I think is a big problem in the church that we need to address, right? We need to have people believe what they believe uh, because they believe it, not just because someone told them to. Anyways, for me, 
when you talk about the the things like creation, like you have like the creation story that's presented in the Bible, and then what we what we know uh, that the science bears out about how the universe, not the universe, but like especially Earth and life on Earth and all this and humanity began. specifically. For me, one of the biggest things that drove me away from the church that I was in for so long is we had someone at the pulpit talking to the congregation say, and you need to be careful, talking to Christians, you need to be careful because there are people out there that will try to tell you that evolution is real and that Charles Darwin like was right about evolution. And I was like, oh, like, like pause, buddy. Like you're saying that maybe like the one scientific idea that catapulted the human race into the, like, into the 20th and 21st century and all the things we think now, and maybe the most provable scientific idea ever, which is, which is Darwin's theory of evolution. Yeah. You're saying that we should be careful of people that believe that. I like wanted to stand up. I was like sitting there in the front row because I just come down from the stage leading these same people. Okay, I'd just been playing music for these same people, leading them in worship. I'm sitting in the front row and this guy says this, I cannot tell you. I was so tempted to stand up and be like, I believe in the theory of evolution. So, like, what what do you say to me? Yeah, like, the data you, the data bears it out pretty clearly. Well, like, buddy, the birds on Galapagos Island that didn't have pointy beaks couldn't eat seeds out of the rocks, and they died. <laughs> and that's why they all have pointy beaks now. Like, the, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, like, we know this. I think I think what he was getting at is that like people came from chimpanzees is like his big thing. But it's like you're discounting an entire scientific theory that has been proven time and time again because you're scared. Because you're scared yeah. it means what you believe isn't true. Yeah. And I was, and for me, and that's one of the things I was like, I, I, this is not a place where I can flourish and thrive because I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm very, very much in the corner of science that has to do with the formation of the universe and also a Christian. And it's like, how do those things reconcile? And it's for me, at least the way that I understand God and the way that I was taught about who God, like capital G, God is, is not someone that I could possibly, someone that I could possibly understand or that I could fathom, or that I could put in a box where I like, okay, I get it. You know what I mean? Science is one of those things where if you can get it, you get it. It's provable, you can test it, and you understand it, and you see it. If God exists, then there's no way he can be that way. There's no he. I'm saying he, because that's the way that we talk about God. But God as the entity, God that created the universe, as Christians believe, can't possibly be explainable. It it, it absolutely would need to require faith to be possible. And so that makes sense to me. But if that is true, if you believe that A is true, then for me, you must also believe that B, if God is capable of what we would like probably call magic, which is like just divining the universe into existence, then it has to be possible that God could have done, created the universe exactly as science purports, right? Through, you know, we talk about things like the Big Bang and we talk about things like evolution over millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And it's like, if you don't believe God's capable of that, what kind of God do you believe in, right? And it's like, as I hear those things and as we learn those things, I have to believe that the God that I believe in is capable of doing things that way. And like you said, with talking about the absolute truth of the Bible, right? Like that's another thing that people really honestly struggle with. And I totally get, because if you've read the Bible, there's weird stuff in it, man. There's like, there's weird stuff. There's like bears killing innocent children, and there's like <laughs> yeah. there's like demons being forced For calling into calling a guy bald, right? Yep. Like there's <laughs> demons being forced into innocent animals. There's tons of like rampant misogyny, sexual abuse. Hor- there's horrible things in the Bible that are displayed. A lot of them, yes, are artifacts of the time, you know, in which it was written. You know, like there's tons of horrible things that are described in the Bible, not necessarily advocated for, but there are definitely things in the Bible that seem to be pretty clearly 
advocated for or taught on that we read today that are kind of challenging. They're like, really? Like, were we really supposed to think this? And I think for me, that's where people like have their big breakdown where they're like, well, not everything in the Bible can be literal, right? Which I agree. I think that to think that we perfectly understand the Bible, even after 2000 years of having it, not that long, but you know, that's, that's a tough thing to say. It's more likely that we don't understand everything that's written in the Bible to me than it is that something is in the Bible by mistake. Because again, if you believe in the God of the universe who created literally everything, it's very, it's very hard to believe that there would be a typo in the book that he has let us read for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that he didn't mean for it to be in there without taking it out. Like, at least that's what I think. It's more likely that I just don't get it. And I think sometimes that's, and maybe that's a cop out, maybe that's too easy. But for me, it helps me. It works for you. It works for me, but it also, it's more than just working for me. It, it helps me remember that uh, the goal is not to strive for a complete, perfect understanding of God and everything that he wants and everything that he is, because I don't think that that's possible. I don't think it should be possible because otherwise you can beat the game. You know what I mean? Like that's the final boss and then Christianity's over because you get it. It's not a constant, it's not a constant striving or a journey at that point. I think for most Christians, they get real caught up in figuring out the fine details of what these two verses about abortion mean, which there's not verses about abortion in the Bible, like just spoiler alert, but like, they're like <laughs> what, what they think this means about abortion or what they think this means about X, Y, Z hot button issue, right? They're so pinned up and like trying to gather meaning out of the Bible to support what they're afraid of and what they believe instead of taking the stuff that's right there on the surface. It's like easy pickings. Like if you want to talk about what the Bible's about, it's like love people. Yeah. Super easy, man. Yeah. Like super easy. Like that's the stuff that you don't need to spend. You don't need a magnifying glass to read. It's like love people, take care of people. Yeah. You know, it's like realize that you're not perfect. And that's the stuff for me. It's like, it's so easy to focus on that for me that, um, you know, I don't need to dig super deep to figure out who I shouldn't like or what I should be afraid of in the Mm -hmm. Bible. Because I don't think there's a lot of instructions in the Bible about who you should hate. I don't I just, think that's in there. I, 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 I definitely can vibe with that whole idea of like love people. And, and I definitely see that narrative in Christianity. And I left Christianity with that narrative so glad that that's where I got it. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I am just kind of one of those people that I just want um, – I'm not ready to just say, okay, this this explanation works for me. I, I've got it and it works for me. I don't – well, it's, it's like you said. It's hard. It requires you. It literally does require you to say, I don't get it. I might never get it, but I'm going to believe it, which yeah. is for a rational person, that's a that's not an easy leap to make. Are you familiar with John Marco Allegro stuff? No. So John Marco Allegro wrote two books. One of them was called The Magic Mushroom and the Cross. The other one, I can't remember exactly what it's called. It suggests that there was a lot of psychedelic mushroom or psychedelic substance used like this. being used in the early church. And then it was like kind of like a... Uh, a lot of what you're reading in the Bible is, and we, and and this is kind of already already agreed upon that it's uh, it's poetic in in its form in its nature. It's it's not coming straight out and telling you exactly what it's saying. It's doing it in a way that is meant to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically is saying like I think a lot of what they're talking about is the consumption of psychedelic substances. Now mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. Which is I think it's a really fascinating hypothesis. And I'm, I'm thinking of another book that I think is by someone else. I'm trying to think who it is, but it's relatively new, but it's kind of the same idea. That's where I've heard it because I read a synopsis of this book, but it's like this idea that not just in Christianity, but it examines all kinds of other 
you know, not just even religions either, but just coming up through the old world and it's like the effect of second, because, and this is totally going to tie into what I was going to talk about with AI. I promise. Like I'm bringing this circle Let's all the way do back it. I love it. I love it. Um, you're talking about your, your drama that you're writing, right. That involves someone in either a present or a slightly in the future, I'm guessing, right. Environment where they're encountering this, uh, like the, the coalescence of like real AI where it's aware of itself and the singularity, like we talked about all the time we think about that, we think about it in the future. And I think the reason we think about it in the future is because we don't have it yet one, but two, because surely we'll have science to explain it. Then I've always thought it'd be really interesting to hear a story or watch a movie or read a book that involves AI becoming completely self-aware, but in the past. I don't know how, I, I, it's just an idea that I've always had, but I don't know how that would be. But I think it probably started when I saw that movie, Cowboys and Aliens. You ever seen that movie? <laughs> no, I haven't, but I need to check Man, it it's out. actually a decent movie. <laughs> but basically, it was a huge shift on the Alien movie because it happened in like the year 1900, right? It happened, mm -hmm. it happened in like the frontier west. It's called Cowboys and Aliens. I mean, you get it. Aliens visited the earth and there were a bunch of cowboys there. Like it was, it was an alien visitation story set in the past, which was cool to me. And in the way that they perceived these aliens and their alien technology, which was super futuristic, was obviously like with this awestruck wonder, right? Like cowboys had definitely not seen laser weapons yet, or, and they couldn't even <laughs> figure out what they're looking at. And the reason is because science before you get it is magic. Yeah. That's what science is. Yeah. Science before, when, once you can explain a phenomena, it's science. Before you can explain it, it's magic. And it's like you said, for people in the ancient world doing doing shrooms you know they don't know anything about the how the chemical reactions in their brain are causing the experiences so it's not science it's magic you yeah. know what i mean which is a great argument for why that might inform people's you know beliefs at the time i think it makes we we see that already with things that just aren't mushrooms like the way people read the stars and like you know ancient romans and greeks look up and they see stars in their movements and that's how they form their beliefs, which yeah. we look back now and we're like, so archaic, so silly. But you got to think we're doing some of that now that we don't even get just because we haven't explained it yet. And so that's why I think AI is so cool because it's something like we're predicting for the future because we know it's possible. But I think there's things that happen all around us that are supernatural to us now. Like I like thinking about the supernatural too. We might end up going there. We are like, going to go there. We're definitely going to go there. I, I think all the things that we think are supernatural now are just like fireballs in the sky that people saw in ancient history that they just didn't know were meteorites yet because they didn't understand that. Yeah. You know, I think there's stuff like ghosts, aliens, weird, just all kinds of phenomena, things that we can't explain that we think are magical and supernatural that one day we may be able to explain. Maybe. And it sounds like a fantastical claim, but I mean, that's the, exactly the story of history, the way it's played out all the way up until this point. So, uh, so one, one of my favorite things to watch just for fun, just like my favorite junk TV to watch is Ancient Aliens. Are you a big Ancient Aliens person at all? I'm not yet, but I'm definitely going to have to be. Okay. Cause like most of it, man, it's just the goofiest stuff you've ever yeah. seen, but it makes you think and makes you ask these, these questions. It's like, cause for me, as I listen to this, I would think as a listener who's analyzing it and enjoying it as, you know, entertainment, the question it makes you ask is like, what if this is how we started? You know, like what if the the major early societies that stood out, that kind of just like the Romans and the Greeks. Egyptians. Yeah, they had information. And like that's what th the thing ancient aliens talk about, ancient alien theorists, right? The people that are, you know, really into this idea is that humanity was visited by otherworldly 
visitors early in our history. The that, Anunnaki, right? Isn't yeah, the Anunnaki, you'll hear about them all the time. That's definitely Zachariah Sitchin stuff, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So like, and their idea is that we were visited by a, a technologi- technologically superior race that gave us the jumpstart that we needed to evolve into the society that we are now. And so what your story makes you think of is it's almost like this happening again, right? Yeah. Or you imagine it's like a cycle almost where it's this happening, which is, that's why it's interesting to me. The other reason it's interesting is because what we were talking about before we started recording, we might've been recording. I don't know. We weren't. Oh, okay. We should have been. Though. We were talking about, you know, both of us, I, I really enjoy writing awful stories. I just like, I just, I get all these ideas. I'm like, oh man, this would be a movie I would watch. Or this is a book I would read, and I start the story idea, and then I just it sits on a trash heap. The trash heap is the notes app on my phone, which I'm going to open real quick. But uh, I have so many. I have them categorized by like genre and all these different things. <laughs> then I'm going to consult with you then, just so you know. Let me see if I can find this. I've got so many alien stories. I really like alien stuff. Um, let's see if I can find this one. Because there's one I'm trying to think of. It was years and years ago that I thought of this. But it was I was thinking, what would it be like if there was a story where... I don't know how we would realize, or we would just eventually realize that more than half of the human race is is kind of like this kind of crossbred alien species. I see. Like, we don't really know. We were visited at one point, and like half of us are basically half alien, half human, and the other half aren't. Kind of like what you're talking about with Homo Deus and Homo sapien, but not like in a noticeable way, like where gotcha. we don't get it. But eventually, this alien species comes back for its people. Like it farmed its own, mm. like its own kind of like half bred people. And like half of us belong, like I'm air quoting belong, but like belong to them. Like they are a part of our lineage and they come back for them. And we're like, what the heck? Like, what I you see. mean, like people, people like through their family lines, you know, their mother's side has this, this genetic trait and the other side doesn't. And all of a sudden people are realizing that half of us are aliens, not really aliens, but you get what I'm saying. I see what you're saying. That's interesting. So let me tell you, so I'm going to take this, I'm going to describe what I'm writing right now and okay. my concept for it. Um, and it's in the it's in the infant stages. But I described to you the first chapter, which is this person who is seeing this divergence between Homo sapien, normal people, and Homo deus, these upgraded people who have not only like chosen their offspring from a huge group of cloned offspring, to have the best genes, but then have also used things like CRISPR, CRISPR to, to make yeah. themselves like eight foot two with okay. brains that are perfect. And then not only that, they've they've allowed themselves to attach to the internet in a way that they can communicate through thought and they can access information in a way that we just can't. And, and so you have this division of people that have that and don't have that. Don't have that. And then you have these people, I feel like, in the middle who aren't really able to, to reach those heights but they're still augmented enough to where they're separate from the humans who are not. Because in my mind, the majority of humans will not have this because they won't have the money to do it. It'll be in first world countries, um, and the average human being is going to be completely left behind. Okay. So then in the next story, you have to ask yourself, it, maybe it jumps forward a couple hundred years, what's left of normal humanity? They're basically living in a post-apocalyptic society, um, cordoned off to certain areas similar to the way that we treated Native American Indians where we stick them on reservations the worst places they are stuck living there and these human gods that I never even tackle as a character because I don't even want to try to fathom what their consciousness would be it maybe helps that they're mysterious they have to be because I I can't even conceptualize what their experience would be yeah so it's no point of even trying and then so you got this post-apocalyptic aspect for an episode and then, like, basically what's going to happen is 
Homo Deus is going to discover somewhere along the line that the planet is about to suffer a major cataclysmic event. Okay. I haven't decided what it's going to be yet. Okay. But they make the decision at this point. This is maybe a couple hundred years in the future. We're already immortal. We don't die. Uh, we're already multiplanetary. So we're living in other parts of the universe anyway. Okay. Let's just abandon this rock. Yeah, time to move. No, Nobody cares that it's the origin rock. They abandon the rock. The rock is struck by a, or a meteor or explodes or something. The majority of humanity is wiped out, except for a small group of normal humans who then sort of progress through this cycle of being hunter-gatherers. Then they discover, um, you know... The similar things that human beings discovered up to where we are now. It's like the restart of humanity almost. Right. But the, what's left over on the planet are small groups of these moderately upgraded humans who are living in like bastions that they've set apart, similar to like something like Atlantis or something okay. like that. And these individuals are now worshipped as gods because they are definitely not normal humans, but there's not very many of them. And in my mind, these bastions of humanity give and their last dying gift to true homo sapien is a structure of society that is very very uh, i guess that that eventually will manifest itself in what's very close to a utopia and i'm going to take my best shot at a dystopian utopian kind of society in okay. one episode and then Guess what happens? Homo Deus comes back. And they're completely unrecognizable as humans. We think of them as being these alien species, but what they actually are is just what we become. So I guess what I really want to ask you, the thing that I'm curious about is like, for me, I don't think I've always been a creative. Okay. I don't feel like that was something that I was interested in doing, making something unique. Okay. And there is definitely a point in my life where that started. I can identify it. Okay. Uh, do you feel like that's true for you too? Can you identify that point in your life where you're like, I'm going to make novel things? Or has that been something you've always done? No, I think it's always been a part of it. Just like for me, personality wise, I think there's a part of me that's like, I can definitely think of pinpoint the moments where I started wanting to impress people. I can think of the moments where I wanted to be interested, where I started wanting to be interesting where I started to want to fit in. I know those moments, but it's always, I took my creative things and was like, okay, I want to find a way to adapt that to make me interesting. Because being creative, I don't think that I'm like remarkably creative. Like you, none, none of you know who I am because I haven't made anything cool yet. <laughs> but like, I think that in a conventional sense, like in a like over beers, like talking about something cool that I've done, like I have some interesting faculties because I'm, because I am like lowercase c creative. I'm not like capital C creative where like my name is on the cover of a book or a like album. You're not Post Malone. Yeah, no, I'm not Post Malone, guys. <laughs> but it's like I do feel like I'm I'm creative, and I and not that I've always been very creative, but like I've, that's always been a part of like my the way my brain works. If that makes sense. Totally, it makes sense. What I'll what I'll say too is, and I say this to a lot of the people that I work with because I work in a very creative role right now where I have to help people tap into their creativity. Um, I think everyone is creative. And I, and I think that everyone is creative. I just think a lot of us, especially at a young age, we're told that we are not creative or are told that we're not, that we're uninteresting or that our ideas aren't good. And so we stop sharing our ideas. And then we start telling ourselves that we're not creative. I think all people have some element of creativity 
depending on whether or not they've tapped into it. So. Yeah. And it's also kind of like everything else. Like it takes practice to get good. Like the Absolutely. first things you make are going to suck. Mm-hmm. I will say, I don't think everyone is naturally a storyteller. I don't right. think everyone is naturally um, a proficient communicator, you know, communicative or um, relational. Just like not everyone's an extrovert, not everyone's an introvert. But I do think we all possess some creativity. I think that's part of the human experience is creating. That's why we have all the things we have. So. Yeah. I mean, I can't draw. I'm not kidding either. So. <laughs> uh, but I like to tell a story, and uh, I love having a conversation. That's probably my favorite thing to do in the whole world. No kidding. Piking, because I was digressing a little bit, but the point was is it inspired this awe experience. I was, in, I was definitely paying closer attention to my environment than I had in a long time. My phone was nowhere to be found. So as I hear you tell this story, it's almost like it just kind of stripped away the barriers that would have been there from you getting to this realization in the first place. All the things, thinking about work, thinking about responsibilities, just everything coming from that prism. Like you get to remove that and just think about, just get like cut straight to the deep moment, right? And how and how you experienced it kind of like raw, how you experienced it kind of purely because no distractions were in the way. Right. And I was... And it, for me, it's not something I've done a lot. So the experience was so novel that I was really tuned into it. Kind of like when you travel, you know, like mm-hmm. when you get to learn. Yeah, it grows your world. Right? Yeah. But another big part of it, I think, is that when you're in a totally new place in a totally new environment, you just pay closer attention to it. Oh, yeah. You're more in the moment. You're more tuned in. It's like being a kid again where everything's new and you're excited about it. Whereas like so often, and you kind of touched on this earlier, like you feel like you get distracted and you're just, you're going through the motions of your everyday life and you don't pay attention to how awesome things are around you. So now sometimes, every once in a while, when I'm really like in a good space, it's not often enough, especially coming out of COVID and just like getting chubby again and just dealing with, you know, the tumultuous world that we're living in currently. Yeah. Sometimes I can get down, but every once in a while I'll look at the trees that are in like around my backyard and like I've it's like li- a healing experience. Sort almost. of because my grandparent my grandpa built this house and when oh, I was a yeah. kid coming up, we did I mean, my whole life from the moment I was born till now, this house has been a part of my life. I've spent a lot of time here. Now I even live here. So I think about those trees and I'm like, those trees have watched me grow up. There's, mm. there's a connection here. And they're big and they're powerful and they're beautiful and they're unchanging. And the world that I live in is so big and beautiful and beyond. And like I feel connected to those trees, but inside of those trees, there's this entire ecosystem of bugs and dirt and birds and squirrels that I have no idea about and it just makes me feel small. Yeah, I do that too like I'll see a, like this is silly but I'll see a bird or a squirrel land on like a railing I'm out on the deck and it like lands near me and then it flies away and almost always the next thing I think is like I wonder where it's been the rest of today <laughs> and I wonder where it's going. Soaring through the sky. Like what Like what does it do the rest of like I was talking to you before we started recording about rabbits that show up at our house I'm like what do they do the rest of the time when I don't see them? But it's like, I do that with people too. Do you ever have that moment where you pass someone on a street or you're on a bus with someone or you have a, just a real like short encounter with someone and the realization kind of like washes over you like this person has a full, richly detailed interior life. This person has thoughts. This person has a mom. This person has a dad. This person has a worst enemy. This person has an embarrassing childhood memory. They have a childhood. They grew up somewhere. They have 
uh, like deep burned into their brain memories of the first house they grew up in. They have all these things just like I do. And I just saw them for two seconds the other day and I might never see them again. And there's just fully formed people with fully actualized lives all around me all the time. And just, you just hardly ever realize it. Every time, like it just happens to me every once in a while, it'll really hit me and I'll think that. And I'm always just like, whoa. Sometimes when I'm in altered ways of thinking, I will think, what if all those people are me? Hmm. And what this iteration of my consciousness is experiencing is just being Mitch Embry. But the ultimate goal is to experience what it's like to just be a human. And at the end of all things, my consciousness will emerge having this understanding of what it is to be all people and to have all experiences. That sounds like an altered thought. You know, and to be a, like, I I am the same as the vagabond, the the murderer, the, the prostitute. And I am the same as the prince and the CEO and the, the, the astrophysicist. We're all the same consciousness. It's just our experiences and the environment in which we've grown up in that inform the, the personality that emerges. And also, you know, the genes in which the, the meat sack in which our consciousness is contained in really informs the experiences that you have. Like, I'll probably never run a hundred mile race, mm. but I have buddies who have ran a hundred mile race. And then at the end of all things, you get to just emerge knowing what it's like to have died at the hands of like Attila the Hun, but you also know what it was like to go to the moon because you know what it's like to have all experience. See, that that is a wild thought and my brain is still kind of reeling from it. Something something like that, like you said, that I think often um, and not in an altered state. And I will say this, before I go to that thought, uh, it's so funny to hear you talk about like mind-altering drugs and psychedelics and things. One thing about me that maybe you should know is like, I'm not scared of like much where I would be like, oh, that terrifies me. But one thing that I'm, and I tell people this all the time, I really am scared of the thought of being altered in that way. One of the reasons I've never done any type of mind altering drug and probably, I mean, unless I have some kind of epiphany, the reason why I probably won't is because I am scared to think about what an altered state would be like. I think it's like this Alice in Wonderland thing where I'm like, I'm afraid I'd get stuck. Like I get stuck in some altar, which is, there's no, there's no reason to think that, but it's like, for me, that's, that's even the reason I don't drink a ton. Like I, I drink, but I don't drink in excess because I don't know what I would do if I was like plastered and like, and the reason I don't like smoke or get high or do any of those things is not because I have some kind of objection to them. I don't, but it's like, I'm afraid of what I am if I'm not in control of me. I totally understand that. I think it's just relinquishing control. That's what I have fear of. Can I psychoanalyze you for a second and Do ask it. you if it's true? So, Do like, it. so for so what I hear you saying is, I'm afraid to fully surrender my worldview because you you're if you were to have these experiences, I mean, you're the not going to trip you're talking about the forever. way that you're talking about thinking are ways that I think unaltered right like and it's like i'm like what is out there behind this curtain right. and i don't even necessarily want to know <laughs> well it might not change your experience at all then it definitely it might not you I know? Don't know but the i don't think it doesn't make sense to be afraid of tripping forever right 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 but it does make sense to be cautious about having an experience that might change your worldview forever 
and might change just how you think about things and, and the person that you are. And if you're happy with the person that you are and you feel like you can move forward in a way that's going to be meaningful to you and is going to be meaningful to the people around you. Like I not even, wanting to be awakened to some new understanding. I wouldn't yeah. even encourage it. I wouldn't even encourage it I think sometimes. part of it too is even more superficial than that. Like you might be giving me too much credit. I think part of it too is I'm afraid of like being out of control of my actions and someone else seeing me. Yeah. And having that inform what they think about me. That's fair. Like that's the whole reason I've never been intrigued. Like people would talk to me about like, man, I was at this party last night and I was gone. I don't even remember it. I don't, like I didn't remember stuff until someone showed me pictures. That sounds horrifying to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I did something crazy? Like, what if I did something that would like negatively impact my standing in my social group? And like, that's the reason I always want to be in control of what Gabe is doing. Like, I want to be at the controls. The little, like you watch Men in Black, the little tiny guy that lives in his brain that's pulling all the levers. Like, I want to be that person. I don't want to give somebody else control over what I do or some other thing. I don't know. That's part I totally of it. understand that. I totally understand that. Uh, and I don't think it's weird necessarily to be I don't think you should be ashamed of like wanting to have a positive standing in your social group that's what being a human is yeah that's what makes you a a good friend you know sure (laughs) like that's a good quality to have right so I mean I don't I don't judge anybody not to say that not to say that losing control of your actions is a negative trait either it sounds like your experience at least from what you're describing was mostly positive it was and controlled, which is the important thing to say. I went into it with a purpose and also like I was happy about the decisions I'd made that week. Like I'd worked out every day that week. Cool. I had eaten well every day that week. I'm not going to lie. I may have felt a little bit ashamed about the whole month before I had this experience. <laughs> but a big part of having this experience was to try to move forward in a positive way. Right. So uh, overall it was good. And now I kind of feel like it's not something I want to do again anytime soon really. Uh, See, I think that's always a good feeling when you do something and then you know, I don't need to do it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I think things like that, obviously, as we know, can become quite addictive for for people and can Mm -hmm. lead to real long-term issues. Like we shouldn't, we should not understate the fact that, you know, powerful drugs that change the way that the brain literally works can be damaging for people that don't use them responsibly. Oh yeah. Obviously. And there's tons of like research that would suggest like if you're already kind of unstable, if you if the foundation is already weak and then you just kind of like wipe that foundation out, mm. even marijuana consumption is associated with like the emergence of like schizophrenic behavior and stuff like that. So I mean like all drug use should be done in a thoughtful, informed way. But even caffeine, you know, it, I know before going into a conversation like the one we're having that I should probably drink coffee like two hours ahead of time because mm-hmm. I don't want to come in here like with my heart racing and like yeah, wanting to- jittery. Because I'll talk too much. (laughs) Listen, you got the wrong person in here if you're worried about talking too much. No, I want you to talk too much, Gabe. You're the guest. (laughs) It's the purpose. If all I do is sit here and just chat over you, then like I just have... These are, I mean, these are very interesting ideas to me though. It's just like you're already naturally talking about things that I just find myself very interested in. Just kind of examining the vastness of what consciousness is. It's kind of like this very esoteric idea that's very easy to just be like, okay, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because I don't. But it's just, it's... When you start expanding your brain to those corners, like the corners you don't spend a lot of time in and start thinking weird things, that's when you start like that's when you start getting into the weird stuff. You know what I mean? So let me ask you this. I feel like sometimes I'm so zoomed out that I'm not zoomed in enough. You know what? I 100% relate. I do. Because I and I'll even tell you what I tell people sometimes because I don't, I not I don't know what your particular story is and I don't want to minimize this experience for anybody. 
Um, but like for, especially when people struggle with anxiety, right. Or, uh, or things of that nature or, the, or just worrying in general, I shouldn't even say anxiety, but just worry in general. My immediate reaction is to zoom out. If I'm in a situation that stresses me in any way, I zoom out and I think about big picture. I'm a very big picture person. And when other people are stressed out or anxious or worried around me, I have a real nasty habit of thinking I know how to fix it. And I'm like, well, you're just thinking wrong. You just need to zoom out. You just need to get a bigger picture. You need to get more perspective and realize that this one little thing is not that that big of a deal, which is is harmful. And I've and I've known in a lot of my relationships, I've minimized people's pain and anxiety to the point where I'm actually, you know, refusing to understand what they're feeling because it's uncomfortable for me. But for me, sometimes I spend my time so zoomed out that like I'm not paying attention to the the finer details of what's happening around me. You know what I mean? Like and are you an Enneagram person? Do you follow Enneagram stuff at all? No. Okay. It's you know, it's it's similar to stuff like Myers Briggs and it's like a personality gotcha. um thing. But without going deep into that, like for me, I'm a very extroverted person. I'm a people person, but I'm also one of the things that's that defines me, not just because of the Enneagram, but just like in general, and I know it's about myself is I avoid all negative emotions. Like very few people have ever seen me angry. Very few people have ever seen me sad or or just down in general. I'm a very up person. I'm a very up and out person. You know what I mean? And so for me, when I encounter negative stimuli in my life, my response is get away from it. Like if something happens that um, harms me personally or like emotionally, which is rare. But if it does, I just get away from it. And usually that's in the form of zooming out and getting perspective and saying, well, this is not a big deal. They didn't really mean that. Or like they said this, but they didn't mean that to harm me. They said it because of, you know, they were stressed today. They did this. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't even matter. Like the grand scheme of things should be like the name of a band that I start eventually. Like that's like, <laughs> like for me, I'm like, I always think, well, in the grand scheme of things is like the story of my life. So for me, that's how I avoid all my problems is by zooming out. So <laughs> when you say sometimes you feel too zoomed out, like 100% know what that's like. Yeah, for me, I kind of think of it differently. Like I like to think of myself as an informed person. I do too. But then if you were to ask me about like specific things that are happening currently in politics, mm-hmm. no clue. Now, see, I've I've felt that way. And it's interesting you say that because I feel like uh, as far as political engagement goes, I feel like I would be in the... In the higher 50%, like you could cut it in half, people more engaged, less engaged. I would feel like I'm pretty engaged. And a lot of us are because it's just, it's a freaking wild time to be an adult American. It, it just really is. And so I've felt a lot of pressure to be informed, a lot of pressure to be engaged and understand what's happening. So more than any time in my life, I feel very politically aware. But it's like you said, I know what I believe and what I think. And how I feel, but if someone were to ask me to really get into the nitty gritty of how universal healthcare would work if we were to implement it, I've got some blanks there. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I know what I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's exactly how I feel. Like I know where my values lie, and I know what's important to me, and I'm right. looking for people who are talking about my values and who are talking about what's important to me, and I'm not seeing that. So that's why I kind of feel. Uh, the way that I do about politics. But if you were to ask me like, why don't you specifically like this candidate or why don't you specifically like that candidate? I could talk about like broad uh, aspects of their character that just definitely don't, that are definitely not characteristics of a person that I would want to follow. Mm. But I can't tell you specific things about like their policy that, see, and and that's a problem, I think. I 100% agree with you. And I feel like I've got some of the policy stuff 
where I've just, just from all the information I've been devouring, because it's like I'm a, I'm an information seeking kind. It's like we talk about research, researching hiking gear. It's the same thing. I just want to know things. And I, and part of it, like I said, on a superficial level, is wanting to be seen as the guy who knows things. But I, but really, when it comes to this stuff, I just want to know. So I think I've informed myself about a lot of these things. But I don't think you need to know all of the details to know what you're for and what you're against. What's dangerous, though, and I think what, I mean, you, you can definitely attest to this because we've all seen this. It happens in our families and in our groups. As people start realizing what they feel and they look for confirmation bias in their surroundings. Things that reinforce how they feel. And they, if they don't see it immediately, they start to gravitate towards people that they agree with that know more and that have the details and, and you start listening up, right? And I know this because I do this, right? Like I know what I think and if I want the details, I don't go to some nonpartisan center of the road source more often than not. I go to someone who agrees with me that I trust and I digest and I devour their information. And what happens is we all start doing this and we start polarizing to the absolute opposite ends of each other, which I think is we're reckoning with that right now. I think we've been doing that for way longer than four years. I think we've been doing that for decades. And now it's just kind of like the the culmination of years and years and years and years of retreating farther back into our bunkers about the things that we think. But it's caused us to draw like artificial lines between things we believe with people. Like you're either on the blue side or the red side of this, the yes side or the no side, you know, the agree or the disagree side. And not everything has sides. I mean, it's just like not everything has clear cut yeses and nos. And when we put things in like your pro or con this, you start adopting beliefs that you really, if you analyze them closely, you wouldn't take on. And this goes all the back to what we were talking about with the church. It happens when you're like, are you for this or against this? But just you should know if you're for this, that it means you're also for this, you're also for this, and you're also mm. for this, and you're against this, and you're against this. So they are a package deal. So you have to decide. And most of us don't know what we're signing up for when we get into these package deals. You know what I mean? So I don't know. The world is too complicated for one human to navigate it proficiently in all arenas. Yeah, exactly. And it's like when people talk about, like, well, which party is right? Like in American politics, as if we have like distilled down to two parties and one of them's totally right and one <laughs> of them's totally wrong. Now, that's not to say, and I need to be careful, that they are equally right and equally wrong. Mm. I personally don't believe that's true. I don't think the same way it would be nonsensical to say that one party is 100% right and one party is 100% wrong. I think it's equally nonsensical to say one party is 50% right and 50% wrong and the other party is 50% right and 50% wrong. Yeah. It's just, it's, one of them is more right than the other, but based on what? Like based on your definition of what's moral, what's ethical, maybe, uh, or based on what's beneficial for you as an individual. Right. You know, I can think from, not necessarily for me, but let's imagine I was in some different standing. Uh, if I, if the only thing, if what I, the anchor that I formed all of my political beliefs on was my personal interest, there'd probably be one party that was really <laughs> beneficial for me and one party that wasn't. But, and then if I shifted my interest on what's best for the common good, all of a sudden that might be in flux. One party would be better than the other. Or if I, the same way, if you said, well, what's the best for this, um, suppressed class, this, this minority group, it might not be the same as what's best for you. And that's why we have to do this thing where we're like, okay, well, what, what am I trying to vote for? Am I trying to vote for what's best for just me? What's best for all of us, you know, yeah. et cetera. So it's really hard. And then also I'm kind of at a place where I'm almost like, Let's take some time to look at what everybody's got wrong and just get rid of that. 
let's mm. take a really hard time to look at what everybody's doing wrong, like only giving a shit about rich people. Mm. Like both parties are doing a whole lot of really only caring about wealthy people. Well, it's because wealthy people move the things that move the economy around the fastest. Exactly, right? yeah. They have the most direct effect on the outcome of so many things, more than just major markets. They have the out, they have, they shift all the trends that make American life move. So, of course, if you're going to focus your attention, and also they have the most direct ability to benefit people that make decisions, right? Exactly. So, if you're going to focus on one group of people, you're going to focus on the people that have money to throw around. Yeah. And that's just, I think, I think that's the, the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why I don't invest more time in even learning about the policies of the people that I'm being asked to vote for. Mm-hmm. Is one because I feel like either way, I'm just getting a little bit more of the same in the long run. Yeah. And then also, and this is something I wanted to touch on earlier, like I don't know if I can trust any of the info that I'm finding out about anything. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. That's unfortunate because it that starts a lot that starts like this kind of slippery slope problem where if you don't think you can trust most of the info, then why should you think you should trust any of the info? Right. And if we have no info we can trust, then what do we form our ideas on? Yeah. You know what I mean? And which I think is dangerous. I think it's too easy for people to do the all or nothing thing where they're like either all the news is trustworthy or all the news is fake. You know what I mean? And that's just not it. Like there's definitely some good reporting out there in the world. There definitely is. Maybe it's outstripped two to one by bad faith reporting. I believe that that's possibly true. You know what I mean? But I don't think that it benefits any of us to just say, well, it's all it's all fake. You know, you can't trust anybody. I think it's more beneficial to learn how to decipher what's real and and what's not. And that's where you nailed it. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And I'm not even going to try to pretend like I'm not lumped into this. Most people either don't have the skills or they don't have the time or they don't have either the interest or the interest to try to discern what is good information and what is bad information. And it all comes back to this thing. The reason why we've drifted into this idea of like politicians make decisions, you know, we forget that politicians are also just people. It's just, that's just their job. Just like you have a job. And they're supposed to be serving us. If we want to talk about the actual role that they're supposed to be filling. Absolutely. They're not like, they're not some next level of human being. They have the same, um, cognitive faculties as you more or less. And so if they can understand it, you can also understand it. Most people, they feel fatigued by trying to understand the problems of the world, specifically the problems of our politics, because they feel like they can't change it. And there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, my vote doesn't even matter because I can't change anything with just one vote. You know, which when that happens and when we start to disassociate ourselves from this responsibility, then we start to have the other negative consequence, which is when things go bad in politics that we know we don't like, we say, well, politicians are crooked. And then and the news is fake. And they actually, they only care about rich people. And it's the deep state that's making all these decisions. And actually, you know, it's, it's all because of globalization and the new world. And it's like, we start to, we start to forget (laughs) that we are responsible for the outcomes that we experience as, uh, as a people, as, as a nation. And I think it's so easy to complain once you, once you truly believe you have no responsibility for the civic outcomes of it. And it's hard because the road back to us taking full responsibility for the way this country operates is a long one. You know, like like I said, the 
the country exists like being in the tumult that it is in right now is not did not happen over the last four years. Was it exacerbated out of, out of control over the last four years? I say yes, but I don't think that all of our problems emerged in 2016. I don't think that they did. I think that they just started getting gasoline poured on them, yeah. right? But to to go back to where we really feel like we have a democratic group say in the way this country works is not going to happen in four years either. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of buy-in. And I don't know, I mean, not to be like fatalistic or anything, but it's like, I don't know where that giant collective buy-in comes from right now. I don't see a lot of groundswell of people wanting to get involved in politics. I see a bunch of people wanting to get away from politics. When I allow myself to zoom out, I think it comes from the ability to sense or discern intention and i think that comes from a collective consciousness or a collective mind the ability to it's sometimes i think about humans as individuals and other times i think about humanity the species itself as being one entity and we don't have the hardware right now to think of ourselves that way yeah and we don't have and it's almost like when we think of ourselves as a species we just don't have any self-preservation instincts, it seems like, yeah. at times. And I've, okay, listen, here here comes an unqualified, you know, <laughs> white guy with a microphone in front of him who's just going to make an <laughs> unqualified claim uh, with no science to back it up. But that's, I like doing that. Here's what I think. And I've said this before to people to just mixed responses, but here's something that I genuinely believe. And this may make me sound like a crackpot or this may be very believable. I don't know. I'll get your take on it. But I've said, and I've really thought about this, really thought about this. And if you were to ask me, I would say that I believe that humanity, the human race, our survival as a species of humans, only has five generations left on this planet. Think about it for, think about it for just a second. It's a bold idea, but I think that think generations like our children, their children, their children, their children, and then their children. I think on the trajectory that we're on without some kind of major, and I mean like, like world-shifting intervention. I think we are of the last five generations of people that exist ever. I think based on my story that I'm writing <laughs> that I don't think it's the last group of humans ever. Okay. But I think we're on the precipice of perhaps another transition. There's a decline of the current way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about, you know, how we move forward as a country or as a species. It also has to take into consideration the internet. Oh my gosh. And it yeah. has to take into consideration like our, our genuine legitimate ability to create copies of ourselves, to sequence and map out our genome and to make decisions about which genes are expressed and which genes are not expressed. I mean, like, they're those, doing those that. Those advancements will definitely be what I'm talking about when I say world, like, world-shifting innovations. Yeah. Like, those are the things that would, yeah. So do you see all human beings perishing, or do you see us being replaced by something mm, There's a fun elevated. question. I don't know. Maybe, I think, you know, if we, if we map out the trajectory of the way we've developed technology as a species in the past, it's almost like, you know, for millions of years, we're here. I'm no one can see what I'm doing with my hands, but I'm imagining <laughs> hockey stick growth on a chart, right? It's yeah, like it's here, 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 and then all of a sudden, just yeah. like immediately shooting up as certain technology feeds into new technology. And it's like you said, I think that we living in the inf infant stages of the internet world 
don't even have a way to grasp yet how um, how incredibly massive the internet is of as I mean as a force of change in human society. Like for us, it's fun. It's where we talk to our grandma that lives in a different state, and it's where we post pictures of our cats. But it's like it's a big big deal there's like not been anything like it in human experience like maybe like when we've started written language it's a comparable and that sounds like a something ridiculous to say but it's like it is such a huge deal and it's and like i said it's at the infant stages of its capability right now absolutely so that will change things for sure for what the human race becomes right but since i'm still just a normal human right i'm trying to organize my life in a way that makes sense for normal humans so what I'm saying there is when I make it to be in like a super rich podcast empire and I build my small community like Joe Rogan's doing in Austin, Texas, yep. I want you to come. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's just really my main point. Gotcha. Okay, good. that's good. So like when I build like my tribe, I want you to be there. I love that. Yeah. That's nice. There's a really How weird... close are you to that, by the way? <laughs> Not even. Oh, okay. You know, we're talking probably. I pro... It's never going to happen. So don't even worry about having to move or anything. Oh, okay, like that. cool. But just like, you know. The invitation stands. The invitation yeah. is always out there. I like that. That's yeah. good. There's something weird that about me personally where I just feel this really strong connection to all these people from this very similar era of my life, which kind of is Starbucks. I don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. when I think about the people who. Maybe it was because it was the first time I was really in an environment where my point of view was really being challenged regularly. Like all of a sudden I'm hanging out with like a lot of gay people and I'm like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And so I can, I can distinctly pinpoint the moment where I became aware in not like a surface level way of how many people around me were gay. And that sounds like a goofy thing to say, but like I, I distinctly know when that happened, like not like a day. But, like, I can remember the feeling when it shifted in me from, like, gay being this weird thing that was kind of like a mythical creature to, like, people I know and care about are gay. And that is just something. Yeah. You know and that's I mean? just a huge part of becoming a like more... Like awakening to the world. <laughs> yeah. Empathetic and, and loving people yeah. more. It makes it easier to do. But I'm really just talking about, like, this strange connection I feel with a lot of people that worked at. Or were around people that worked at Starbucks. And this is interesting to say because people listening to this who have listened a lot and have heard from a lot of Starbucks people yeah. on the show because there's been a ton. Yeah. You know, um, I feel really connected to those people. And it's it's worth mentioning, I never worked at Starbucks. Yeah. The only reason I know all of you is because that's where I was stalking my then-to-be uh, wife. Like, we weren't married yet. We weren't even dating yet. But I was basically just really creepily stalking her because I desperately needed a friend. And she made the mistake of giving me any of her time and so i just started like harassing her (laughs) this sounds awful but i mean like and so i ended up in that circle i ended up in the circle with a lot of you and and so for me i had just gotten out of high school i just graduated high school and like knew a bunch of people i was not necessarily popular not by a stretch but like i was i knew a ton of people i was good acquaintances with people and i was generally well liked like Lowercase L liked, right? Uh, I was the funny guy that made a joke, very self-deprecating, you know, and just like, I was generally enjoyable to be around, but I was nobody's friend. And you're beautiful to look at, Gabe, just thank so you, you know. Thank you. Not so much then. I've, I've, I've got kind of glowed up. No, I'm just kidding. Nice, nice. But, uh, but even then, uh, I was, it was, it was not 
necessarily uh, unfortunate to be around me, but no one was inviting me anywhere. Gotcha. You know what I mean? I was not anybody's friend, and I wasn't in a friend group. There were a lot of like mini tribes. There were a lot of friend groups in high school, and I was not part of anyone, any any one of them. But I knew all of them. And so when I graduated, and people started going off to college, and people started like dispersing. All of a sudden, I had this huge moment, like maybe the most like empty and depressed I've ever felt in my life was right at that moment where I was like, I'm alone. I couldn't get anybody to hang out with me. I went to college and knew nobody. And I was like at ground zero. And I kind of had this shocking, and I just gotten out of a relationship. And I just realized, like, I don't have any real authentic relationships. I have so much like surface level where I play a character for people so they will enjoy my presence. But I like don't know anybody. And it was, a re- it was a real dark, empty place. And of course, Kate and I have history. Kate, who's my wife now, who worked at Starbucks. We have history, and I've known her from my childhood. So when I ran into her and had spent some time with her, and she made the terrible, lifelong mistake that she's still paying for the consequences of, of giving me time to talk about my problems, like she invested time in me and listened to me and gave me the time of day. And we started to form like an actual, one of my first authentic real relationships and friendships that was important to me. And so I just wouldn't leave her alone. I, you know, I was just, if she was at work, I was like, I was at Starbucks for hours and hours and hours a day, just work, pretending to work on schoolwork so I could be around somebody that cared about me because that felt really good. And like, like I said, fast forward now, years and years later, we're married, happily married, you know, and my relationships are more healthy and more fully featured now after what I've learned. But it's like you said, I feel a lot of connection to that moment in my life and those people also. Because there's a ton of those people like, there's a ton of people like uh, Elena and Lindsay and and just people that I don't even know that well even today. I still talk to, but don't know them intimately. But I feel like they're a huge part of my life just because of where I was and where they were and that kind of like that crossroads, if it makes sense. That's interesting. So what that means now is, because you've mentioned your lovely wife, Kate, and actually when I think about like our friendship, it definitely stemmed from my friendship with her. Mm. So what that means is we have to do a Just Friends Couples. Ooh. So you'll notice. Oh yeah, there's plenty of mics here. There's plenty of mics here. I think that would be tons of fun. I'd love to do it. It's an idea that I've had that I've not done yet. I don't know why, just in the the climate that we currently live in, like. Tell me about it. It's tough. Yeah. This almost didn't happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I'm super glad that it did. It Me was too. a blast. And I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. I know. I've got like plenty of other things that I could like dive into. How much, how, how long have we been here? An hour and 55 minutes. Okay. Is that, that's pretty much like when the music starts playing. In yeah, the... we should probably wrap it up. But, <laughs> but because there's so much fodder here means we have to, we have to come back and do it again. Yeah. I'd love to do it again. This was a blast. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here, Gabe, dude. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. I love you, man. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Another podcast in the books. I told you it was going to be a good one. I had a lot of fun talking to Gabe. I left this encounter with a small crush on him. And I don't think his wife's super happy about that. It was such a pleasure to have him on. And I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Once again, guys, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening, rate the show, leave us a review, send us over a like, whatever. Check out the Facebook page and the Instagram page. Give us some hearts and stars and horseshoes, clovers and blue moons, whatever the fuck you can do on any of those social media sites. And of course, check out JustFriendsPod.com where you can find links to all of the episodes 
opportunities to purchase merch with our beautiful logo designed by none other than our friend Mr. David Vantelberg. And you can also find links there to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts. Guys, please become a patron. It would just be awesome. And it would mean that I can do Just Friends podcasts just a little bit longer. You know it's going to end eventually, guys. It has to. There's going to be something new. But we should keep this going as long as we can, and that happens through your support by becoming a Patreon patron, through the purchasing of merchandise, and through your listenership. So if you guys are out there listening, you guys are gangsters. I love you all. I'm excited about next week's episode. I hope you are as well. But until then, please take care of yourselves. Be kind to one another. Bye.